Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Don't Worry About Your Life. Jesus Speaks to Our Fears and Anxieties. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 8th, 2010. Every Thursday when the New Yorker magazine hits my mailbox, I immediately sit down and thumb through all the cartoons. I like them so much that my daughter gave me a desktop cartoon-a-day calendar, so now every morning I enjoy a new bite of irony. I cut out the cartoons and give them to friends if I think they'll connect with some specific life experience. A bad business deal, a trip to the doctor, a dig at gender relationships, or maybe some wry observation about marriage. One recent cartoon earned my best ever accolade. I handed it to my wife and said, this cartoon explains me. The sketch pictures a man sitting in his living room with a look of panic on his face. He's dropped his book and his hair stands on end. He's yanked his legs off the floor and onto the chair where he clutches them in his arms. There's a bomb on the floor that someone tossed through his window. Shattered glass litters the floor as the fuse burns down. In the punchline, he confesses to his wife, It's all my fault. I wasn't worrying enough. Another cartoon, taped onto our kitchen cabinet, pictures a man in bed late at night. He's sitting up, scribbling on a notepad, and talking on the phone. In the caption, he tells his friend, When I can't sleep, I find that it sometimes helps to get up and jot down my anxieties. And then we notice every square centimeter of the bedroom walls is covered with dozens of scribbled worries. War, recession, killer bees, aging, calories, sex, balding, radon gas, and on and on. As a natural-born worrier, I love these characters with their exaggerated sense of responsibility. I make lists, then mark things off after I do them. I'd rather be an hour early than five minutes late. Brooding and internal soliloquies come naturally to me. My exterior demeanor is calm, but my internal engines are always racing. And at night, when it's time to sleep, I can't find the off switch. Truly relaxing is a challenge for me. Overcompensation, that's my specialty. Obsessing about a trivial detail, I've perfected the art. As the cartoon puts it, just think of all the bad stuff that will happen if I don't worry. I try not to be too hard on myself. My pop psychological analysis suggests that I inherited a worry gene from my mother. I'm not clinically depressed like she was for the last 20 years of her life, and I don't chew my fingernails like I remember my father doing when I was in high school. But the worrier in me wonders, anything's possible, and there's still plenty of time. Not all worries are merely imagined or artificial. Some are genuinely real. There are legitimate reasons in our world to worry. Among my friends and family are divorce, unemployment, eating disorders, bad mortgages, chemotherapy treatments, 
sleep disorders, and struggling kids. And when you look at the larger world, there are environmental disasters on an unprecedented scale, the collapse of the housing and financial markets, rogue states, and the threat of nuclear terrorism. In the same issue of The New Yorker as the first cartoon above, an article called Fresh Hell explores the boom in dystopian fiction among young readers. Perhaps it has something to do with the world they experience every day? The author writes, The typical arc of the dystopian narrative mirrors the course of adolescent disaffection. These dystopian tales, he says, are about the world being broken or intolerable. And so, although we manufacture some worries by projecting our anxiety onto the world, other worries are sane responses to an insane world. The Gospel for this week from Luke chapter 12 anticipates our personal neuroses and our legitimate anxieties, but not in the way that we might expect or want. Jesus, observes D.R. Made McCullough, plays by a different set of rules. In the Gospels, he observes, Jesus is his own authority. The coming kingdom that Jesus announced produced outrageous inversions of normality, like paying a laborer who worked only one hour an entire day's wages. Jesus subverts our cultural conventions and natural intuitions with a sense of relish. And such is his advice to us about worrying. Don't worry about your life, says Jesus. Don't be afraid. Instead of hoarding money, give it away. Instead of worrying about yourself, care for others. Beyond all your prudent planning for the cares of life, abandon yourself to a fatherly God who is all-powerful and intimately personal. After you've hedged every bet, and calculated every contingency, enjoy the beauty of the morning bird song and the glory of a field of flowers. Having fretted over a life of worries, whether artificial or genuine, consider an act of faith. Live like what you believe is actually true. After you've run yourself ragged like what Jesus calls a godless pagan, Luke 12:30. Rest in the knowledge of a benevolent being. How? How so? Your Father knows what you need, says Jesus. I'm not sure how to live free from worry, anxiety, and fear. But I did recently appreciate the wisdom of 91-year-old Houston Smith in his new book, Tales of Wonder. It's his autobiography. Born to Methodist missionary parents in rural China in 1920, Smith enjoyed a distinguished career as a scholar of world religions at Washington University, MIT, Syracuse, and Berkeley. His book, The World's Religions, first published in 1958, has sold 2.5 million copies as an introductory university textbook on the subject. Smith has been married to his beloved wife, Kendra, for almost 70 years now. They lost an adult child to cancer and a granddaughter to a mysterious murder. 
Smith recounts his encounters with Huxley, the Dalai Lama, and his decades of globetrotting. In the second half of the book, he describes his personal Christian faith and how, as he puts it, he never saw a religion I didn't like. Now, near the end of his long life, Smith says that he's absolutely convinced of at least one thing, and I quote, We are in good hands. For further reflection, consider Philippians 4, 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And for a counterpoint, consider the desert monastic St. Makarios of Egypt from the 5th century. He said, I am convinced that not even the apostles, although filled with the Holy Spirit, were therefore completely free from anxiety. Contrary to the stupid view expressed by some, the advent of grace does not mean the immediate deliverance from anxiety. For books this week, I review a title called Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think. The author is Elaine Howard Eklund, New York, Oxford University Press, 2010, 228 pages. In this recent study, the sociologist Elaine Howard Eklund of Rice University moves beyond the common cultural rhetoric to social scientific reality. From 2005 to 2008, she surveyed roughly 1,700 scientists from seven natural and social scientific disciplines who were randomly selected from 21 elite research universities. In addition, she further interviewed 275 of these scientists in person or by phone. She structures much of her narrative around 10 scientists who embody many of the broad themes that emerge from the study. Neither a polemic nor a manifesto, she says, this book offers a balanced assessment of information gathered scientifically from scientists themselves. Although in the last chapter she sheds her scientific neutrality and assumes the role of an arbitrator, in order to suggest how both scientists and people of religion can engage in more productive dialogue. Eklund's study documents how the common assumptions of many people are wrong. In the first half of the book, she explores the personal religious beliefs of scientists. About 53% of the elite scientists have no religious tradition. But, of course, this likewise means that almost half of them do subscribe to some sort of spirituality. Those who reject religion often do so for reasons that have nothing at all to do with science, like family background or the problem of evil. Roughly 20% of atheists and agnostics still describe themselves as quote-unquote spiritual. Then in the second half of the book, Eklund describes how these scientists engage public issues. How do they handle religion in the classroom, for example? 
Do they actively suppress it, passively ignore it, or constructively engage it? Another chapter examines the secularization of the university. As a former campus minister, I especially enjoyed her chapter called God on the Quad. This book should make for an excellent conversation starter among scientists and people of faith. You can give it to anyone in either group with confidence that it is scientifically reliable, fair-minded, and nuanced. Everyone gets to have their own say in their own words, although I might add the results are not always flattering. You learn why scientists distrust religion. Others talk about the rigid secular orthodoxy that they experience on campus and how so-called diversity is often very limited. One unbeliever feared that science was doing itself much harm by its dismissive attitude toward religion. None of the scientists she surveyed supported the theory of intelligent design. One of the biggest problems is when both sides, because of their limited experiences of the other group, have no cultural scripts, and so they resort to shallow stereotypes. In a short final chapter, Eklund tries to shatter myths that her study uncovered. Like the myth that all atheists are hostile to religion, that there are no religious scientists, that religion will go away if you ignore or suppress it, or that all religion is fundamentalist. Three appendices conclude the book by describing the study, the survey, and the interviews in person and by phone. The title of the book, Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think. The author is Elaine Howard Eklund. For film this week, we go to Australia in a movie called The Square from 2008. There's a little square in the ceiling of her apartment, behind which hides a duffel bag of money. Carla takes that money, thinking it will enable her to ditch her criminal thug of a husband named Greg, who put it there in the first place, and to escape with her lover, Ray Yale, a man old enough to be her father. That, as you might imagine, was a very bad idea. Many other people believe that money belongs to them. Greed is the focus of this film, and it's not pretty. For his part, Ray's life spins out of control in a cascade of collateral damage, bad luck, poor choices, and unintended consequences. In the opening scenes, Ray takes a bribe for a construction bid, and every scene thereafter moves from bad to worse. At the end of the film, he walks away as a badly broken man. I don't think there's a single character in this movie that enjoys the faintest glimmer of good news, and all because of a bag of money. The title of the film, The Square, 2008. From Australia. And finally for this week, we conclude our series of poems by John Berryman, 1914 to 1972. Berryman wrote 11 Addresses to the Lord, and this week we've posted the 11th and final address. 
Germanicus leapt upon the wild lion in Smyrna, wishing to pass quickly from a lawless life. The crowd shook the stadium, the proconsul marveled. Eighty and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no harm. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp, John's pupil, facing the fire. Me make to me acceptable at the end of time in my degree, which then thou wilt award. Cancer, senility, mania, I pray I may be ready with my witness. John Berryman, 11 Addresses to the Lord. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 8th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.